Hey everyone, it's Tuesday, December 15th, 2020. Welcome to episode 45 of the Ginger and the Beard podcast. I'm AJ, aka the Ginger. And I'm Reese, aka the Beard. And on this week's show, we are joined by Adam and Jonathan of Capstan Bar Brewing Company in Hampton, Virginia. Thank you guys for joining us. How's it going? Well, thank you for having us. We're so glad you guys could join us tonight and we're excited to learn a little bit more about Capstan Bar Brewing Company. So to get things started, can you guys just introduce yourselves and give us a quick background on Capstan Bar Brewing? Sure. Uh, I'm Jonathan Connolly. I'm the brewmaster here at Capstan. And I'm Adam Connolly. I'm the general manager at Capstan. Awesome. As far as background and stuff, I mean, like, you know, again, we've been in beer, like, as far as, like, drinking and home brewing and traveling beer you know like a, a tourism for many many years and uh that's just kind of like our, our long and winding road kind of wound us up right here we're excited to get into it we got a lot of questions prepared for you guys so yeah definitely and uh so you guys opened in 2018 right we did awesome yeah well very... The 15th, 2018, was this first doors open. So, so really close to going on three years. March. So nice. That's awesome. Well, congratulations on your own brewery. Um, that's that's really that's really cool. So I, I know that people out there are probably curious because the beard and I also were quite curious first looking into you guys. Like, what the heck is a capstan bar? Um, you know, so we we actually did some research and figured it out on our own because we we're too curious and couldn't wait. But could you guys tell the people out there what exactly is a capstan bar, and what was the inspiration with you guys going with that name? Is there any ties? Obviously, Hamptons a, is a very nautical, you know, sort of location. Lots of water on the, on the coast and things like that. But can you give us a little little history in that? Yeah, I mean, we always wanted a nautical theme for the brewery, and originally. We were going to be called Blackbeard's Point Brewing Company, which is named after a point of land in downtown Hampton where Blackbeard's severed head was displayed after he was killed. In wow. That's awesome. <laughs> That's metal. <laughs> and they brought his head back, and it's sat there on a pole for a while. And long enough to, like, on a map, it still will say Blackbeard's Point. Um, but when we decided to... We did a trademark search on the name. Unfortunately, anything involving Blackbeard and beer is trademarked. And we didn't want to get up and running and all of a sudden get a cease and desist and have to fight something in court that we probably, if someone had, you know, better press, better lawyers than we did. <laughs> uh, you know, I tried to get the name because I found out who owns it. And the guy lives in the Virgin Islands, and I, I called him on his cell phone, found a number on, online. I was like, I wonder if this will work. And I talked to him, and nice nice guy. And I, he talked to me about his business in, in the Virgin Islands, and uh, he makes a, uh, I think, I don't know if they're still in business, but he made a, a Blackbeard's Ale. And that's he trademarked that back in the 90s. So he's had it a while. Um, and I can't, I think it's Saint, I can't remember the name. St. John. Yeah, it was St. John Drink Company. Interesting. And, um, and he told me, you know, what he does, and he wished me lots of luck. And but the last thing he said to me, but I own the name. Hmm. So we went <laughs> back to the drawing board and you know started brainstorming, trying to find 
Like we wanted something to be Hampton and, you know, Blackbeard's point would have been so cool because of the history of Blackbeard, Hampton, the point itself. But there really wasn't anything like that. So I had a whole list of names like Marlon Spike. I mean, Deadeye and all of these were taken. And finally, I, I, we trademarked search capstan bar uh, and nothing involving capstan or a capstan bar is trademarked except we now we we hold that trademark nice um, that way we can you know for building a brand no one can tell us well they can tell us the season this is but we own the name nice and for, furthermore so yes kind of kind of cool and available but it also i mean is mm-hmm. apropos i mean it, it, as you can i don't know y'all can see in the background like mm-hmm. this part is a logo there like those are the capstan bars that were would be shipped inside the holes there and needed to be of like strong oak and pushed in unison just to winch that uh, the hauser line there around the, around it and would either you know raise or lower anchor what have you anything that needed to be like lifted mm-hmm. or pulled that that would do it so it's it's uh it was it was a fitting uh, insignia for also the backbone of a brewery as well yeah yeah and just to kind of paint a word picture for the folks who are listening in their cars and not looking at the youtube video number one go check out what a capstan and a capstan bar looks like on google it'll be a little easier but if you can imagine back in the day before they had mechanical winches and things to raise and lower an anchor multiple crew members would have to gather around this cylindrical sort of you know uh, structure with the poles around it and they would have to walk in unison around this thing to hoist up, you know, heavy objects, like you said, an anchor or whatever needed to be lifted up. Um, yeah. So that's where you kind of get the, the, you know, the teamwork and integrity and unity and all that stuff. Um, and obviously the strength of the, the bar itself. So really cool. I'm glad we got that background and, and, and clear that up. So thanks. Uh, thanks for explaining that. Kind of gets, uh, this was the replacement of the old uh, heave ho that they would have to do on the ships, I, I think. I mean, yeah, they had to, like, do, that too. They had to do that too. Um, but before a capstan, they used a windlass, which was basically a horizontal mounted capstan where they would, the bars were kind of vertical, um, <clears throat> which is how they would raise the anchor. And that's what it was used for mostly. Um, and this, these were a, a design benefit because you could actually make them go through two decks. So you could have caps, two decks of capstan connected by a big pole and have crew members on two decks, like if you had a, a ship with a big anchor. Uh, so these were considered a technological development nice. that happened probably in the early 18th century. <clears throat> Any ship that or boat that has an anchor that's too heavy to hoist, you know, manually, they still have a capstan. They just don't look like this. They're motorized. Motorized, yeah. You'll, you'll, Wisconsin, you know, in Norfolk has capstan. You'll find this interesting. I actually sailed on the, the U.S. Coast Guard Eagle. Um, I don't know if you know the Eagle, but I actually was on it for a couple months, uh, and had a capstan. So (laughs) that was the prize, huh? Yeah, the prize, yeah. yeah, from World War II. Uh huh. Exactly. We got yeah, we got one of Hitler's ships. Uh, <laughs> active duty Coast Guard, um, stationed in Connecticut now. Nice. I did not get the 
ago. The Eagle was here last year, year before. I didn't get to go down there to see it. Yeah, I was in I was in New London, so I don't know if if he's in New London, but that's where I was for a little while yeah. there. Nice, that's what's up. Cool. Um, so yeah, I, I love I I love that little backstory there. You know, keeping with the nautical theme, trying to like you know bring in some historical um, you know, insights into the bar, get people thinking about things. Um, we've done a little bit of research and see that both of you have very unique backgrounds. Adam, um, you have an extensive experience in sustainability and environmental sciences. And Jonathan, you have a long history in, in brewing, but also in archaeology and history. Um, can you explain to us what led you both back to brewing and running your own business? I can tell you exactly what it was for me. It was the government shutdown in 2012, 13. Like, Makes sense. It was we 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 did, we didn't work for two weeks, and we didn't. I was lit, we were literally you filled out paperwork, acknowledging that you were not going to probably get paid, and it was like the best two weeks of my life. Um, did whatever I wanted to, and because you know eventually when you, you know, I started in our field archaeology, and as you become promoted you get further removed from the resource and don't really work directly with it um, so you know and, that, and it was at that time that i took notice of the beer scene in hampton roads and it, it was amazing because i literally had not brewed professionally since 2001 i think and um you know that and back then craft beer we didn't even call it. it was, craft beer wasn't a term. Microbreweries back then, um, it was a it was a gimmick, and it was very hard to sell. Um, you really were only going to make it if you were in a large metropolitan area. Um, and just to like to give you an idea of how different it was, uh, the brewery I, the last brewery I worked at before Capstan was in Fresno, California. And so San Francisco is probably the biggest metropolitan city to Fresno, and it's still like two, two and a half hours away. I could walk down a crowded street in San Francisco and ask 100 people what IPA was, mm. and I bet you maybe two would know. Yeah. Um, when we opened up the brewery I was working in Fresno, we had an IPA on tap, and on our opening day, I was standing by the bar because I was watching, because we had the draft system was tricky there, so I was making sure everything was flowing right. People are lining up and they're looking at the chalkboard and like, I'll try that IPA for the IPA. <laughs> and I was like, what are these? And I, was, I was like, oh, they don't know what India Pale Ale is, IPA. Um, nowadays, that's different. And that's that's what I noticed, you know, back then when I had my, my two weeks of leisure, I was just like, man, people are enjoying craft beer Whereas before it was like, hey, they'd have a couple of pints of, of your craft beer, maybe, um, but most people still wanted macro brews, uh, right. and like and like beers that we could never have sold back in the '90s. People loved, and and I always felt like when I was started brewing in the '90s, I had missed the first w big wave of craft or micro brew. Um, it had just I got out of brewing school and that wave was kind of just, just cresting and crashing on the shore. 
and a couple of years into it, you know, breweries that made great beer were closing down or consolidating, and it just didn't seem like there was a future in it. Um, and then when I, you know, back in 2012, 2013, I was taking notice. I was like, man, this is a whole different market. And that's when I really started thinking about going back into the brewing industry. Makes sense. Yeah. Just having one thing lead to another, you know? Um, so, you know, what about you, Adam? Um, so I guess what, what, you know, Jonathan was the main impetus is for, you know, for being in the brewing world, home brewing, and then the brewing scene. I also turned officially 21 while he was down in Fresno and I was at that time up in Olympia, Washington. So I often either Jonathan would come up I-5 or I would go down I-5. We'd have to pass through the five hours of Oregon and, um, you know, which was grand. I mean, we would, we would bring, like, I would go down, down South and like load up on like cases of Bigfoot or like celebration when it was fantastic and not fresh wet hops, the variety of the real deal. And like, um, you know, we would almost plan like seasonal adventures as far as like some some certain of our favorite breweries would would uh, allow. So for that, I mean, that was where, you know, personally, I, I mean, I was more into the environmental science. Um, I mean, as far as like evergreen, like uh, symbiosis, my main focus was like, and then like a fungal and al like algal uh, symbiotic relationships and uh, as well as botany. Um, so from there, again, it was just more of like a, uh, a more a fun time on I-5 that we, where we were able to go and every little out there, I mean, it's a different, different world. I mean, every, every town, like almost like Germany, you know, has like their own brewery or whatnot, or like going up, up, let's go through Grants Pass and then head through, you know, eventually like the the Siskiyou's or something. And like you, you would find just different, like uh, great breweries, some of which aren't, unfortunately aren't even existent anymore, but, um, but they would like literally were the foundation of what was back then. I mean, like even like Burt Grants from out of the Yakima Valley, like which, which is to this day, one of the best porters of it, like we've ever had, like no longer exists. And, but like, you know, so, so that was it. I mean, the West, Western Washington drinking scene, like the Eastern Washington growing, like the, the Yakima Valley, the hops. So like you had all of the, like the ingredients. I mean, it was, it was something else. I mean, it, and um, having that college time to kind of zone out and, and travel around was really like profound as far as like uh, picking the pathway that we have led ourselves on. Yeah, you, you guys seem like you're veterans of all of this, you know, kind of just being in that scene before it was a scene, uh, picking up on all of the, you know, all of the, the knowledge before anyone else really did. Um, it's it's a shame that it didn't really catch on in America until, you know, what, like late two, like late 2005, like post 2005, kind of, um, because like over in, you know, like Germany and Belgium, you know, you have all these Trappist ales, you have all these flavorful, you know, beers that nobody even knows about. And we even, you know, back then, I think they kind of like mocked America for having like just drinking domestics all the time. It was no flavor. It was like drinking water. Um, you know, so 
it's I'm, I'm frankly I'm just happy that it's like we've we've got this now in America. Um, I'm not like you know there's sometimes it goes a little bit too far, you know. So I I like when you see you know the traditional more traditional stuff where you have you know roasted malts, um, you know select you know uh, you know yeast and different hop varieties where you get the flavor from that, not so much you know like adding syrup or adding some kind of gimmicky stuff to it and. Um, kind of going on a tangent i think here but you know it seems like that's what you all are doing at your brewery is kind of sticking to the traditional uh brewing methods um you know and so <clears throat> kind of just looking at what you guys have on tap you know a lot of other breweries you have like pepper beers you got milkshake ipas sours all kinds of other crazy stuff um we looked at your website and it's really just like looks like old world techniques with modern innovation. So um, can you help us kind of understand on like, based on what your website says, you know, what do you mean by that old world techniques with modern innovations? Well, when I first started brewing professionally, I was, didn't know how lucky I was to work with some of the people I did. Like now I know a lot of them were pioneers in the industry. Um, my first actual job in the brewing industry was when I was at Siebel Institute of Technology, which is the brewing school too in Chicago. And I interned at the Goose Island production facility, uh, which was then independently owned. And they had, they had the production facility as well as the, uh, and they, when I was interning there, they they said they need someone to come wash kegs for like three hours in the middle of the night. So that was technically my first job. It was washing kegs in the middle of the night um, and then going to school the next day or, or the actual internship. Um, when I was there, I think the, the Bourbon County Stout had only, was only like two years old. It was, you know, something new. And they, from what I can remember, were some of the first craft commercial breweries to ever age beer in modern times in a wooden barrel. Um, from then, I got a job working in Alexandria, Virginia at a brew pub that's now no longer. And um, that brew pub had been around a couple years, and they were in the process of expanding to a production facility across town. And um, I took German in high school and and community college so i could kind of converse in it and they built the brewer the production facility we built with they bought a state-of-the-art 20 hectoliter system from munich it's called baraplon um smart mouth has a baraplon system in fact when i went in there i recognized it right away i was like, oh my it's the, the old baraplon and the germans the company sent an actual braumeister from germany so someone you know, we call ourselves brewmasters, but in Germany, this person basically is like the PhD equivalent of a beer, a brewing scientist, uh, where they have the old, you know, uh, trade system there. So you start as an apprentice journeyman, and he was a master, and um, he was in his 60s. And so we're building, I was working at the pub, I was the only, working on a seven barrel system at the pub, I was the only brewer there, and then I'd go to the production facility and we do, you know, we did labor, uh, construction labor there. And we were stripping the floors and the brewmaster there 
his, his name was Franz Burke. He was, we probably shouldn't have been working in there. We were not wearing respirators. We were, it was nothing like that. And he was looking pretty sick. So the, the, the head brewer, um, who, uh, his name was Brad Wynn, and he worked at uh, Wild Goose before there, which was a great brewery um, in the Mid-Atlantic. Um, he, and he came to us from Wild Goose, and um, he recommended to the owner that Franz go to work at the pub with me uh, while the floors were being chemically treated and sealed. So I got to I'm like I'm like the lowest man in the totem pole. I'm 21 years old. I I had gone to brewing school. I've been 21 for two weeks before brewing school started. And I'm working with like this guy who taught at Derman's Academy in Munich and had been working in the brewing industry since he was 15. And even as bad as my German was, his English was really bad, but we, you know, he, and he, he, you know, so, but I got to work every day on this little pub system with this, you know, this German, you know, powerhouse brewer. Um, and that was amazing. Um, so I learned, I learned a lot of German uh, techniques, uh, brewing techniques from him. And then Brad Wynn, who I mentioned, he um, he had been taught English cellarmanship techniques. So um, uh, that's your cask conditioned ale. And so we taught me how to do it, and um, we. At that time, we were the only place in all of Northern Virginia, D.C. area that had real ale, cast-conditioned ale served out of Firkins, uh, which we would tap on the bar with a mallet uh, every other Friday. It was Firkin Friday. Um, so that, though, that, those were you know, the old-school techniques that I was taught. And then when I took the job in California, I was exposed to these beers, West Coast style beers, which were completely new to me. And there's beer styles we were making in on the East Coast back then that are literally now extinct. There was an East Coast IPA that was basically like, it was like an old English IPA, except we used American ingredients. But then, then like, and the only time we ever dry hopped anything was in the Firkin. You would put hop plugs in the Firkin and that was it. And then I went out to California where the hops were more prevalent, you know, because they're grown on the West Coast. And I was exposed to these, you know, these just amazingly, you know, to me, hoppy beers. Nowadays, they, they wouldn't be considered much anything special. But, uh, you know, back then it was it was a whole different, you know, scene. Um, on the topic of Firkins, real quick, could you just explain for the benefit of anybody listening? Yeah, yeah. So, um, Firkin, a Firkin is is a measurement, uh, a beer measurement, and um, I think I'm remembering right. It's like 10.8 U.S. gallons, and you can have a Firkin, pin Firkin, which is almost about five gallons, a Kilderkin, and a ton, and then and then there's other measurements like like a butt is 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 you know, holds, I don't forget how many gallons of beer, but basically what a firkin is and fit firkins and pin firkins are most common because they're manageable. Like you, you can easily lift them up is it's, it's like nowadays they're made out of metal. They used to be made out of wood, 
and it's it's almost like a miniature wooden barrel except made out of metal where it's got a, a bunghole in the, in, on the, in the side and a, and a keystone in the head hole. And what you do is, to try and simple, simplify it, because I could talk to, on this for a while, is you rack beer into it when it's almost done fermenting. And you sometimes you add fining, sometimes you add a hot plug, and you put in a keystone or a, a shive to, to close it, and then you hammer in the, the shive and the keystone to seal it. And then you let it condition for about two weeks at room temperature. So the beer finishes in the firkin, and it's all naturally carbonated. Um, and then there's a whole other, you know, process behind, you know, serving it. But it's beer as it had been served for, you know, thousand years or more. Um, and it's, you know, you could serve it like, like we did where we'd actually take a mallet and a, and a, and a tap and you would whack it and beer would squirt everywhere and you'd stop it and serve it right out of the firkin or the kilderkin or the, the pin firkin, or they have beer engines, but it, it's, it's not, um, it's not like draft beer where it's for, you know, it's carbonated highly. It's, it's like usually, you know maybe 1.3, 1.6 volumes. Most American ales are 2.3 volumes of carbonation. So it's lightly carbonated. The mouthfeel is softer because the bubbles are, are actually smaller because they're excreted through the yeast. Um, so it, kind of, it gives you like this flavorful, you know, beer that it is tastes like as it should, as it was intended, I, I guess. Um, without, you know, prior to modern draft systems. And there's not, like, you know, I don't know of anyone, I'm sure people are, I, I sometimes, I haven't done it in a while, but we used to have Firkin Fridays here. Um, you know, we may start doing that again. Um, just to, to see if, you know, it's, it's it's kind of a hard sell because the beer is slightly warmer. <clears throat> And, you know, then it served at cellar temperature, which is like 55 Fahrenheit. Uh, most beers served at 36 Fahrenheit. So, you know, sometimes it's it's a, it's a hard thing to sell to people that are on, have never had it before. But um, it's, it's great if you can find actual real ale that someone has finished in a firkin or a pin firkin and served properly. I think it also allows, like, a, a little bit of experimentation, which you could do on more of like, you know, depending upon the volume of the vessel. So pin five gallons, or let's say the Firkin 10.8, you know, you'd be able to like, oh, I'm going to put some like blonde roast coffee and some something or like, you know, or, or like vanilla beans, like true legit into that. Let that finish over the two weeks and then have that flavor impart. So it was kind of a, a you know an au natural way for experimentation to go down as opposed to having like you know fifteen barrels of some orange crazy something and then you've got fifteen barrels of yeah. orange crazy something so yeah but tr traditionally the only time I ever put anything like vanilla beans and cocoa nibs in a firkin was here back in the day we'd never did that. That right. was not, it was, it was like literally 
you know, the beer went in, you put in finings and a hot plug, and that's how it was. Um, but, you know, that be, because the market has changed so much, you know, you can do that nowadays. Back then, I don't know if we could even sell it, uh, you know. And, and the reason we, we were so popular in Northern Virginia is because there was a local chapter for the campaign for real ale called Camera. And um, because real ale was dying out in England, they were they were switching to regular draft systems, and the English pub culture was dying as a result. And so there was this this organization that started to preserve the technique of making and serving real ale. Uh, we happened to have a chapter, Northern Virginia DC chapter. I don't know if there's one down here. Um, I should look at that. I don't think there is, but. Uh, but you know that was that, that they they were a ready market. Like people would call up the breweries, like is it Firkin Friday? I'm like, no, nope, it's next Friday, you know. Uh, and we would sell it out, you know. We, we would that Firkin would be dust in two hours or less um, back then. Yeah, I think it'd be awesome to see a resurgence of the Firkin, especially if you know the ginger and i can make it out there i would love yeah. to love to try it i've never had a you know i don't know i don't know if i've ever had anything you know like that before out of a firkin you know i've had warm beer certainly and i'm i love warm beer um i got my own warm beer sitting down in the closet downstairs but yeah i, I just i just want the experience you know uh it'd be really fun to do what Jonathan said, I mean, it's that, it's that true knowledgeable art on his part to like, you, you know, he, the way that he was explaining it, you know, years ago now here is like, you have to find it. So it's just like what one degree Play-Doh from finish or something like that. I, yeah. I mean, there's a couple of ways they determine when the beer that's fermenting is ready to go into it. I would do it where it was a half degree Play-Doh before I thought it would be done. Meaning it had a half percent of sugar that would still be fermented. Um, bigger breweries, they do a yeast cell count because they have a, a lab that they can do that. Well, we didn't have that. And that, and that was a lot of, you know, a lot of the things I was trained in by older brewers was in lieu of having a microbiological program. So I learned anecdotal methods to do stuff like that without having a microscope and, and modern, more modern instruments. Um, but yeah, there's like... You know, like I said, I could explain like get crazy with with the Firkins, but you know, it's it's not something I do regularly anymore. Um, uh, you know, it's it's only going to be something we do every now and again. And when we do do it, we'll advertise it, you know, well in advance because um, it is cool. I mean, you know, I you know I I put it on the bar and I have this mallet. I tap it and quickly stop the beer from shooting out, and it's served right out of out of the Firkin or Pern Firkin with gravity. And there's okay. like a hang time clock. What once it's going, you got to finish this thing because yeah. otherwise, because of the reduced carbonation, I mean, you know, you will have a. Uh, it, it needs to go. Yeah, pretty but, much. You you got to serve it really best that day because there's no CO2 pushing it, so it just gets oxidized. Mm -hmm. and so the next day, I mean, you could serve it, but not beyond two days, you you know, you, it's no good. You got to dump that. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's one of the things, like, you know. If we do it again, it'll be a limited time to make sure we don't dump beer, you know, just make yeah. sure a, a five or so gallon pin firkin um, is, is gone within the day, which is usually the case. There was only one where there was a little left. Um, but, um, well, I, I feel it, like it's a drawn out procedure. And I, I, 
I am a one man show in the brew house. So it, you know, I try to keep a whole variety of beers on tap. So it's, it's usually when I have time, you know, to fill Ferkins, it's, it's kind of rare these days. So, and the right beer, yeah. like not every, not every beer out there variety is probably conducive mm-hmm. to, to that. Makes sense. So no um, sour milkshake IPAs coming out of the Ferkins or? I mean, you could do nowadays, <laughs> and there's no rules anymore. Yeah. You know, you could, I, I this, just, this yeah, wasn't sour to begin with, but yes, it is, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think you could do anything like that, you know? And, and, you know, that's, and that's, you know, honestly, that's probably where dry hopping came from. The idea of it was putting hop plugs in, in barrels and casks and, and firkins. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, and I, I've not made a, a milkshake IPA, but I'll probably try one. I'll try to make one for certain. You know, it's yeah. it's because back then, like when I was brewing in California, I made a coconut porter, and was like cutting edge, and it was awesome. So good. But nobody, so good. it just it, it sold well actually at the brew pub I was working at. But when I took it to the Great American Beer Festival, the the people that were so, you know, hemmed in by style guidelines absolutely hated it. I had one guy pour it out in front of me on the floor and call me. Told oh, he said that you personally bastardized the style of Porter. Wow, <laughs> and that was 1998, right? Was that? It was, uh, I think it was 99. 99. Yeah. I don't, I don't think we did. We didn't go to the 98. That was 99. So. Oh, he must hate his yeah. life right now with all the new yeah. stuff out. Yeah. <laughs> but that's how different the so market was back then. Like, you know, so, you know, nowadays, like I said, I, I, I really welcome the experimentation. It's very cool. And, and I've been, I've done things that I never would have done. You know, I've added things to beer I never would have done. But still, yeah. you know, I try like I, I don't like using extracts. I always try and use real um, things, you know, to make fl- real actual whatever to make the flavor components. So if it's coconut, it's coconut, chocolate or cocoa nibs and things like that. Or yeah. Puree. Um, yes. So I, I want to come back to the uh, Great American Brew Brew Festival really quick. Um, you know, we we read that. You know, speaking of Great American um, Beer Festival, not Brew Festival. Sorry that you actually beat out Sam Adams in a particular category, um, which we were quite, quite impressed to hear about. Do you, do you recall what that beer was exactly? And, you know, oh, yeah. do you, you do, and yeah. you, you feel like that like, success that under your belt like, kind of expired? Like, I will yeah. never forget that day. That was like, I was totally unexpected, but it was, um, there were 33 ent- 38 entrants into the category and it, um, I think the category was experimental ale, which if I, I look back at the beers in it, like, man, these are so tame by today's standards that were experimental. And the beer that I, I put in the category was a pale ale that I had um, made with puffed amaranth grain. And um, we had been using indigenous North American grains in the beers at this brewery I worked in in California. That was our gimmick. And um, we put pre-gelatinized wild rice in the red ale. We used flaked maize in the cream ale, which you're supposed to do anyway. That's, you know, you're supposed to use an adjunct like cream or rice or um, uh, corn or rice. And um, the amaranth 
when in the IPA and just a little bit. And these were not, those were not recipes I developed. There was a corporate brewmaster that developed the recipes and I, I made them. I was the head brewer at that point. And um, then this was new. It was, we were part of a chain um, on the West Coast and we were a new brew pub in that chain. And so we opened up with these beers that had these very expensive adjunct ingredients. Pre-gelatinized wild rice is super expensive. It is now, it was then. Amaranth, very expensive, which is like why I put like, like barely any in, in the beers. And so we had been open for like two weeks and the, the CEO of the company called me directly and I had never spoken to this guy before. There was the brewmaster between me and him in the chain of command. I only knew who he was because his name was on the paycheck that I got. And when the bartender came, he was like, so wants to talk to you. I was like, oh, I thought I was going to get, I thought I was getting fired. I was like, why is the CEO calling me up? <clears throat> so I get on the phone and he's like, Jonathan, what is going on down there? He's like, the cost of these beers are, out of, are astronomical. He's like, you got to take all those crazy weird ingredients out of the beers. So I reformulated all the recipes, but the day before I had placed like a three month grain order. So I had purchased all this stuff. So as soon as like I hung up and I realized, oh man, like I, the order was placed yesterday. I got on the phone with the supplier and they're like, it's already on the truck, heading your way. So I told the brewmaster, I didn't tell the CEO himself. I'm like, hey, this is what happened, you know, and this is what I, I will not order these again. I've reformulated the recipes and I'll just use these ingredients in the special. We were allowed to make one specialty beer like a month. We had five flagships we had to keep on tap. And, and you know, one of them could be of our, you know, my choosing that I made. So um, to get rid of all this amaranth, it came in like 20 pounds, came in this huge bag because it was popped like popcorn. And my office was also the grain storage room. So it took up like, all this space. <laughs> So I was like, you know what? Let's see what this stuff really tastes like, if it has a flavor contribution. So I mashed, put as much in the mash as I possibly could, and uh, hopped it with all Willamette hops, a low, like a low pale ale, like I think 25 IBUs, and it was like 6.5% alcohol. And as soon as it like started getting toward the end of the state fermentation, it had this incredible flavor, like, like apricot. And it, and it had no fruit. And I was like, man, that's, that's wild. Like, what is that? And so the beer finished, served. It was great. Um, but in order to, well, science dictates that you have, it has to be repeatable, the experiment. So I did it again. Same outcome. And I was like, this is the beer I'm sending to the Great American Beer Festival. And it won the gold in that category. Sam Adams didn't place um, that year. They, I think they had this barley wine called the millennial or millennium, something like that. It came, it came in this, like in a wooden box that was lined with velvet. It was super expensive. Uh, but, um, but yeah, that was, that was totally unexpected. That's, that's me. Nice. That's wow. Back in 2000, shaking Charlie Papazian's hand, which was awesome because I learned how to brew homebrew by reading his book, The New Joy of Homebrew. Um, wow, that's and so that's like awesome. and so I, I get off the stage and I take off the metal and and the the brewers in the sister chain are like, no, dude, 
you wear that all night. And it was <laughs> like, it was like, then, then we hit the town in Denver and just party with uh, this big gold medal around. It was like the closest I've ever been to like being a rock. <laughs> That's awesome. That's I've what Olympians feel like. Trying to price Amaranth to see if I can make it again. And, Man, uh, I'm still looking for something kind of affordable or, or alternate ways to do it because it's still pretty darn expensive. But I yeah. really would like to make a variation of that of that beer with Amaranth. I think that leads us into our next question pretty good too. Yeah, definitely. I was going to say we uh, in, a, in a recent episode we actually had Sebastian Wolfram from Epiphany Malts in North Carolina on the show and uh, he talked to us a lot about experimental sort of you know malts and things like that and they use all kinds of wild stuff corn and and, and different things i couldn't even name half the stuff they the, the stuff that he talked to us about just kind of blew our minds and you know reese and i are, are pretty pretty much noobs in the space when it comes to in, the different ingredients and things and we're trying to learn more and more about this so you talking about this is just is great for us but um you know, one of the things we wanted to dig a little bit deeper for you guys is into the ingredients you're using today in the beers that are available at the brewery. Um, so f for starters, I'm curious, how do you guys source your ingredients that you're using right now? Is it locally? Are you like, do you travel to find different ingredients? How does that work? Um, I mean, I, I use whatever I can that's local, um, which is not much right now. Um, the most breweries, they there's there are suppliers in North America that will sell malt hops, and that's where I get my malt and hops from. Are these, these nationwide suppliers? Um, some of them are international companies. The, the international one is where I get um, my European malts and hops from, and the, the one that's based here in North America is where I get. Uh, most of my base malt, which is the same base malt I was using back in 1998, because it's great stuff uh, for most of the ales I made. And but uh, you know, so it really from all over, and and you know, you like, you know, they'll send you samples, um, so you you know, pick and choose and and, and grade it and try and suss out what. It, it'll taste like in the end um, a lot of it is just stuff that i knew from using it years ago um and uh you know and, and whatever you know sometimes new products come up and i was like well let's give it a shot and see see how it is it sounds like yeah. you have your more you know um safe kind of uh, options that you that you kind of stick to and then you also probably have some that you that you try out like the amaranth that you tried out years ago was there any way for you to know that and i think i understand that um it was going to taste like apricot no i mean like sometimes with malt like we'll we'll chew we'll chew malt and grain kernels and generally depending on the malt you can kind of get an idea of what the flavor contribution is going to be. This didn't have much flavor at all. It just was, it was almost like like styrofoam. They're like slightly grainy styrofoam. Um, you know, it wasn't it like didn't even have as strong a flavor as popcorn. But you know, a lot of a lot of things that we we put in beer, <clears throat> the flavor changes completely when it ferments. Like I don't know if you've ever. Home brewed and tasted work that was not fermented, 
but it tastes almost nothing like the finished beer. Right. Um, and you know that. So the same is true with with some of these you know adjuncts we use, malts, and and hops as well. Uh, hops hops change a lot. In fact, you know there's it's kind of cool. Like nowadays, there's you know especially with um, the New England or hazy IPAs, they're actually studying how hops flavors are changed by the yeast, which is something we've never really considered um, 20 years ago. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, and what makes these beers hazy and, um, you know, but, but the, interestingly how like it, it, the, these flavor compounds, these terpenes will convert or into a completely different flavor while they're, they're being fermented. Yeah, that's. So I, I liken that amaranth must have done something similar to that, where it was we call bioconversion, and it just changes the flavor completely. So that's why I was shocked. Like at first, I was like, I thought it was an off flavor. Like was is something wrong? But it was no known off flavor I'd ever been trained to identify, and it was really good. Um, but reproducible. Yeah. So that yeah. that's the critical aspect. Yeah. Can't here. do it twice. Forget yeah. about it. But yeah, which that's is why I, I did it three times before I just I made sure I was like, all right, the second time like tasted the same. The third time was the batch that got sent partially to the, the Great America Beer Festival. Yeah, I right. That's one thing that's always like blown my mind is uh with brewing. I mean, obviously these guys like, you know, Anheuser Busch and stuff like that, they're doing the same recipe over and over on a large scale, but like even but for these smaller scale scale breweries, like how you maintain that sort of flavor, I mean, just naming some of the ones here locally, like O'Connor's El Guapo. Like I know I'm gonna, I know what to expect every time I, every time I drink that, um, you know. And and I'm just curious, how do you replicate that time after time and maintain a consistency? Because I'm 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 a part of like these different, I think Reese's as well, Facebook groups of of Virginia craft beer fans, and for instance. Hardywood's uh gingerbread stout. Yeah. You'll see people year after year, they're like, Yeah, man, gingerbread stout's really good this year, or like, ah, this year it's like whatever. You know, like how do you what's your strategy in terms of keeping things consistent year after it's year? The hardest, it's the hardest thing we do as small craft brewers because the big bigger brewers, they can blend out in the cellar. And so they they'll if you're really big, then you brew high gravity beers and a lot of the brewer's job, particularly the brewmaster, their their job is to figure out how to combine proportions of these two tanks to always make a certain beer every time. And with us, we can't do that. Um, so the only way you really can do it is you take meticulous notes every time you brew, and and you know of time, of temperature, of I don't do it anymore, but I was actually trained to note the weather on my brew sheets. And as I've wow. done research, 17th, well, 19th and early 20th century beers, I've been looking through online brewing ledgers from like 1910. They always put the weather, which, which, and the reason we did that it was because it affected your boil. But I, I didn't know that they were doing it back then, but that, but that's literally, I don't do it anymore because it, I, I, it, I don't think it makes too much of a difference. But I mean, it's akin to like the rally cap or like up the beer during the Stanley Cup. You never know. It's like if this if this works, yeah. Just <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes things don't go according to plan, 
which is how like the hazy IPA was invented. Like the, the way they made that beer was a, a it was a serendipitous thing. It was it was a, a mistake, but it was good. And they went back through their notes and be like, this is how we did it. And and we the way you make them is never was never be a way we were trained to make beer traditionally, you know, 20 or more years ago. So that's like I take meticulous notes, times, temperatures. If I got a substitute grain, that gets noted. Um, and and that's how you are able to replicate those things on the small scale without being able to blend things out in the cellar. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's the skills in the trenches to, to account for those agricultural differences because your your hop could be the same exact hop name, but it has a different alpha acid or something of that nature or even two-roll from the from this company or even from the same company, just different batches will have, you know, cer- certain, you know, yeah. something. Yeah. Every, t- every time I get a new lot of hops or malt, I have to look at the analysis and I will change the recipe in order to make sure it stays consistent. Right. Hops, and hops definitely. Cause every, every time you get a new shipment of hops from a different lot, the alpha acids are way different. And yeah. I like a lot. Um, malt, uh, in this scale, not so much. Um, I can I can I can do change things during the process to make up for that. But if you're brewing on a huge scale, we're using thousands and thousands of per batch of malt. Then the brewer needs to look at the moisture content and you know the, all these other like glassiness, mealiness, uh, the proportions of the malt, so that they can change their recipe um, accordingly to make it the same. Yeah, we actually and then even like since we like since we've opened when we opened we had five uh, varieties that was it on tap and however there has been you know over year after year some of those beers have remained on tap ever since the doors have opened and not only us but as well as our guests are just like dude like this brown ale this tastes exactly like the day my first day that I've ever been here and by all means it's like. You know, this is probably what the the twentieth batch of this, you know, or so, you know, and it's 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 just to put it out there. But but even that, and well, with agricultural differences of the constituent ingredients, you know, taken into consideration. But he's able to, you know, the reproducibility not only in you know of the serendipitous, you know, amaranth peach flavor or whatever, whatever. even the the foundation beers, you know, it, it's it's all about the notes, and and it's 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 wild to have it. And I guess that you know that kind of a- answers way back into recent to one of your earlier questions. It's like, well, all of our the foundation rock solid beer styles that we do offer, which are a little bit less maybe experimental at first glance than than others, but to have that bedrock is massive. And now, like, once, you know, okay, now, like, with his eyes shut and with, like, you know, all of, like, the crazy, you know, uh, supply chain issues, potentially, you know, with us being the small fish, you know, like, okay, like, we want maybe Mosaic Citra. We can't get it. Okay, well, then what can we do? Um, so long story short is, is like, you know, with that rock, rock, or rock solid foundation, then that also, you know, dialed in gives then him the leeway to be like, all right, now right. I can experiment. Something. Yeah. Yep. And now we pull out the Aztec Amber again, or, you know, or something of that nature 
you know, is it's good to have that that standing, that footing, because you know, where others like, you know, I've I've heard some, you know, like where more of experimental breweries will will like someone be like, dude, I love that beer. That beer is great, and you know, it might they might never pass their lips again because it just won't be ever reproduced, and and it's a in the form that you know it as. Yep. You know, maybe they'll call it the same thing. Like, oh, this is the the atom. You know, like you know, as yeah. some beers out Portland are. You know, like that. That's the type of stuff where it's 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 uh, it's 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 wild. Yeah, because you guys are yeah. also limited by, you know, you know what the the resources that you have available to you as well. You know, you can have your strong foundations, but you're dependent on. Um, you know, those, uh, you know, maltsters and, and, you know, farmers, you know, keeping the product that allows you to do your jobs. So, you know, it's, it's heavily dependent on that. I get it. Yeah, we actually had, um, as we had, so we had Sebastian on from Epiphany, but before that earlier in the show, we had, uh, some guys from Pennsylvania who run a hop farm, lion vine mm-hmm. hop farm. And, uh, that's what they told us too. They were like, yeah, you know, we, we can grow cascade here on the East coast. But somebody who grows Cascade out in Seattle, it's completely different. Like a completely yes, different flavor profile. Yeah. So you know the the, the climate, it, they call, you know, we would call it the terroir. How what that terroir, yeah. the, the land climate adds to that particular, mm-hmm. you know, agricultural product. The the minerals of the soil. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything. Volcanic yeah. soil will taste different than you know other like loamy soil. It's 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 a lot. <clears throat> the science in that as far as agriculture so um you know uh I, I, we read about um your your grandmother's peach pie we read about the peach cinnamon wheat ale um and you just mentioned uh, a moment ago i caught it you said something about peach and apricot together so i'm wondering for the peach cinnamon wheat ale are you using amaranth in that as well no no because i i haven't been able to find enough amaranth that won't cost like like a couple thousand bucks <laughs> like so no i actually use um uh aseptic uh fruit purees to add those flavors got it okay okay uh, and that's one of the things like i do try and do you know i i, I we don't have we don't name our beers we i just call them what they are uh, maybe eventually we'll start naming them but um I kind of like, you know, like probably next week I'm going to be releasing our holiday beer, which is um, an imperial chocolate cherry oatmeal stout. And that's probably what I'm going to call it. Nice. Sure. It is what it is, you know. For sure. Um, but that way people like know what, what, what it is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that one I used a lot of chocolate and it's going to get a whole lot of um cherry it's going to be aged on cherry puree um it's also it's on and it's a milk stout that i used uh oatmeal um that sounds delicious <laughs> yeah sign me up <laughs> that sounds like a trip that sounds like a worthy trip across the water for me we did a cherry almond oatmeal stout mm-hmm. last year and that was just people yeah. loved it and and it, it i mean it literally had legitimate marzipan like flavor from the almonds and you know the cherry was was fantastic and it was just the perfect i mean you know i guess that that's another thing where a lot of the like our guests will come in and they'll be like oh like that you know cherry almond or, or chocolate cherry or, or whatever it is and 
you know, like where other uh, establishments, you know, really Jonathan showcases the beer. That is what is at heart here. I mean, it's like, I mean, like right now, like we have our mango tangerine colch where, I mean, it, it is nice. But now if somebody came in here thinking like, oh, like I want like a wine cooler and that sounds great. Well, I mean, they may be not stoked because at the heart is a fantastic Kolsch backbone that has the added fantasticness of those, uh, the aseptic fruit purees, which really provide just that, that, that it's almost like, I guess, tangerine up front and almost as you exhale, then you get like mango. I mean, it's far out how, how it, it just changes on the palate and, um, but yeah, man, it's it's that. But again, at, at the root of it is beer. It is always the beer that that is like you know. But at the same time, you know, when you're going to add these things, they it, you need they need to be evident. Like there's some some you know, nowadays, you know, we're pushing the envelope with adding flavors to beers. You know, but you know, still like I try and balance it so that you can tell that there's these flavors in there. It just doesn't overwhelm the beer entirely because they have to at least deliver, you know, <laughs> the yeah. cherry chocolate's got to deliver. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's going to be a disappointment, but I, it's still a beer. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. and then you get like for, for otherwise, like in the tap room, mm-hmm. we even actually offer a Radler or Shandy's where it's like, if you really want that, like fruit, you know, you know, kind of like experience, well, then, you know, get your beer cocktail. So, like, what we'll do is we have, like, a half and half where, like, you can choose your own adventure with our, our flavored Izzy's, like peach, uh, cherry lime, pomegranate, you name whatever I can kind of source at the time. And if it's it, r- really right now our Rattler, so, like, you would pick the Kolsch and you would, you know, our, our, our beer tenders mix it on the spot. And uh, that has also been well received for individuals who are like, you know, hey, I just don't like beer. Well, that's yep. cool. Let's try this. You know, and then, and you know, like even even a lot of the I don't like beer is just a lot of times you just haven't met the right one yet. Right. Like yeah. that, that's really what's on. Or like we'll hear often like, oh, I don't like IPAs. It's like, well, you just never really had, you know, not all IPAs at all are created equal. Hell, like, I mean, like even New England IPAs, not every New England IPA is created equal. Not every West Coast IPA is great. So, you know, if you if individuals have had a bad experience, just it's like you always never close that door. Yeah, always, you know, just give it a shot. That's like AJ and I. I was never into IPAs, and he wasn't ever really into dark beers. And we kind of started introducing each other to um, different IPAs and different dark beers. And I think now, are you drinking a dark beer tonight? No, it actually is an IPA tonight. Ah, but, uh, okay. I've got a, a fridge full of stouts right now. Nice. Just tonight, that's just what I grabbed. There, there's a time and a place for everything. I mean, yeah. that, that's really what's up. And, uh, you know, there's like, even like when, like, I think when we first released the first oatmeal stout varietal, like, we're just like, uh, should we do it? It's like the dead heat of summer. <laughs> like, dude, I got to the ingredients. We got it. And we dropped it, and people, you know, people like, oh, it's hot. I don't want it. And then they would try it and be like, hell yeah. Give me <laughs> yeah. a 20 ounce of that. You know, like they, they just, and it went, yeah, I mean, it went quick. You know? And, and that, that's one thing I do is I always keep a porter or stout on year round. They, they change. They, you know, I'll make a different, but always, I always have a dark beer. 
um, because, you know, I like them. And I think, you know, there are people that appreciate them year round. And sometimes during the summer, nobody makes them. Anymore. I always yeah. make sure we have a porter or a stout on. In the summertime, the coconut porter is, is our big seller. Nice. Yeah. So you're still doing the, the coconut then. That's awesome to hear. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. seasonal rotation. And it's, you know, it's, it's like we are limited to our draft faucets that we have and our fermenters available and, and cold room storage. But yeah, right uh, now, you know, the oatmeal stout is our dark. And then, you know, by next week, we'll have the imperial cherry chocolate oatmeal milk stout on. Nice. It's a mouthful. Yeah. We're going to have to put an extra chalkboard just to. We'll just, you know. we'll just use those. We'll, it'll be an acronym. Yeah. We'll have to figure out what it is. Maybe it'll spell something. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Mix, move the letters around. There's your, there's your chance. There's your chance to name your first beer. Yeah. I just had uh, Commonwealth's uh, Sticky Buns Imperial Stout, which was pretty wild. It was very, very sweet, like over the top sweet. So uh, I'm excited to try out. I'm definitely, I'm gonna make a trip across the water to pick up some of that cherry before it's gone. Awesome. Um, yes. You know, we're, we're getting close here to our hour. I think we may even be a couple minutes over the hour here. We wanna, don't want to hold you guys too much. The time goes so fast when we're talking about this. And uh, I mean, this is, I mean, we really could probably talk all night about this, you know. But one thing I want to kind of rewind back and go to is, you know, your background, Adam, in sustainability and environmental science and things like that is something that it seems like you guys take pride in at Capstan as well. So can you guys give us any specific examples of, how that ties into you know the brewery today i mean well for the for the front of the house i mean i approached i approached the tap room from like even in the build out with like conservation in mind so like every fixture i mean is like you know granted give or take as far as it is but it's all everything is high efficiency we have like low flow water um you know, flush everything, water faucets, you name it. Um, I mean, we, I have made sure that a lot of this was in place just to not only for one, it's, it's just more economic and it's wise, um, but it definitely helps to, uh, you know, it, it gives, it gives a good vibe for what we have here. And that, that's pretty huge. Um, also, I mean, we are all uh, a base star certified business, which is like, there are some, uh, there's a program in our, our region and maybe up in the Northern part of the like Bay area. Um, but, uh, where like, if you like, for instance, I, I had to write it down here, but like, w there are certain aspects where like we conserve water, uh, we do reduce, reuse, recycle. I mean, I, my staff, like, I'm like, you know crazy picky like i am at home or i'm just like you know this isn't trash you know we you know, for better for worse you know does it really matter well it matters to me you know and, and the staff have, have taken it upon themselves where like we actually do recycle quite a lot of of our you know the waste stream that we produce and um you know it, it's it's a good thing even to the point when our our what our new landlord uh, who's awesome but he took away our recycle bin so like now I just load up my forerunner once a week and just like, I'm like, all right, well, I'll take it because yeah. it's just, you know, it's not that difficult to do, but I think makes a difference and an impact. Um, right. But as well as like, you know, we properly handle and dispose of ha hazardous waste. Um, but in particular, Jonathan is a main, main 
uh, focus as well of being a base star certified business where like he has to take all of his like the effluents and like making sure that all of the chemicals are neutralized before they go down the drain. Yeah, the, pr- I mean, the production side has almost no waste. I mean, like I have a, a, a machine where I recapture the chemicals that I use and I, you know, reuse them when I can and then neutralize them. And I use them, you know, you know I, I dump very little down the drain and all the, uh, the spent grain made from going to beer or brewing the beer goes to a local farmer. So that's that awesome. doesn't get thrown out either. Yeah. I was going to ask about that actually. I mean, he's got pigs, cows, chickens. Mm-hmm. If some of the grain starts to mold, he just like, they just till it into their garden. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, there, they, there's not a speck of it that 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 they let go to waste. I mean, it's 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 pretty pretty great. So so yeah, I mean, like that's little little bits of changes, like little little impacts go are you know you you would not realize how far they really go and right. making a difference. Yeah, that's uh, one thing you know with 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 uh, microbreweries or craft breweries, whatever you want to call them. They seem like the the ones that we've talked to so far put a big put a big emphasis on that. And uh, even you know, I, I told you guys I'm from Lexington, Virginia, and I'm sure you know everyone's familiar with Devil's Backbone at this point. But they've got a uh, what do they call it an outpost or something in in Lexington? But they brew a lot of stuff. So all the water that they use for their beer comes from Rockbridge County, where I'm from, and the spent grain also goes back to those farmers, you know, in that in that um, area. So. If I'm drinking Devil's Backbone here, I'm actually supporting, you know, the environment in my hometown, which is pretty cool. It's pretty cool to think about. So that's really cool that you guys are are doing that. Um, but I feel like you know we're 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 pretty close to our time here, and uh, you know before we close out, this has been a lot of fun, guys. I really appreciate you you know spending your time and hanging out with us this late at night. I know you guys have stuff going on, um, some bingo potentially to get to. Um, but before we close out, is there anything on the horizon for Capstan? You know, without getting giving away any top secret plans, you kind of told us already about your your Imperial Stout. Anything else that you know the the folks out there should be looking forward to? Yeah, I, I mean, other than the fantastic you know new styles or curveballs that Jonathan can throw at any any particular time. Um, I mean, we we have been uh, pre-COVID, we signed the lease on the next door unit. And we were planning on a, uh, a little bit of a taproom expansion into that next door. Um, so, I mean, that, that's still in the cards. Uh, it's just the time frame has been adjusted. You know, the goalposts have moved because, you know, just, just the impact to business. Um, but we, uh, that, that's still out there. Uh, we, we have, like, apartment units that, like, I mean, what, once you do come on up here, like, we are, you know, we are off the beaten path, but well worth finding. And, uh, <laughs> We, but we also now have like these luxury apartments where you could like throw a rock at us. So like those are coming. So like, and awesome. I think one of the one of the units, I think there's four main buildings. One of them's already rented. So like that that's pretty chill because I mean you could like slither on over to us. I mean that's how how close they are. So really, you know that that's that's the main thing without giving too much away is that you know we're 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 here. Well, we're finding and uh you know the styles are historically legitimately fantastic the experimentation ones have been well received and uh you know it's just you never know what we have up our sleeves from from great events great beer and uh, you know once once you walk through the door you're gonna be like oh far out you know like this there's a good vibe here you know yeah and that's that's it's all encompassing and all important so 
Yeah, well, I would definitely feel good about knowing that, you know, the experience you guys have had, just talking to you guys this short hour, you've literally been all over the country and have influences from all across the, you know, around the globe. Um, and your backgrounds, you know, have have brought you to this one place in time. And uh, all those influences are in, in that one single brewery. So I'm excited to, to stop by and um, check you guys out and, and meet you guys face to face, obviously. That would be awesome. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm right there, too. I want to do the same thing. It sounds like just, you know, the the sustainability that you guys have, the traditional uh, styles that you guys have, all the um, history that you have, uh, you know, in the business, everything that you're kind of bringing to it is um, – just really interesting and i i uh yeah i'm i'm sold on it i i gotta make a i gotta make a trip i gotta come try it out so yeah yeah please do we would welcome you both cool well aj aj i don't i don't think we got anything else right yeah man you want to take us out yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, everybody listening, if you're local to Hampton Roads or just passing through, make sure to check out Capstan Bar Brewing in Hampton, Virginia. Pick up a four-pack of 16-ounce cans on demand, mixed and matched to your liking. Also, uh, if you want to learn more about Capstan Bar Brewing and see what they are pouring, head to capstanbarbrewing.com or check them out on Instagram at capstanbarbrewing. Yeah, definitely, guys. Make sure you check them out. And Adam and Jonathan, thank you guys again so much for coming on the show. It was awesome to learn about your backgrounds and more about the, the brewery. And like I said many times, I'm, I'm excited to make my way up there. And uh, Reese and I will have to converge our paths and meet in the middle at Hampton. I think you have a little bit further to drive than I do. Yeah. But, um, you know, okay. we'll, we'll, we'll make it happen so we can meet you guys in uh, in real life. So, again, thank you guys so much. And and uh, thank you all. Yeah, anytime, man. Anytime you want to come back and talk to us more about the Firkins and things like that, we want we're 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 excited to nerd out on that kind you of stuff. You know what you're about to, you know, yeah. like <laughs> get him it's going. It's the rabbit hole. That's what's uh, up. That's what we want. Yeah. That's perfect. <laughs> that's what we want. Knowledge. That's what the people want. Nice. The people want the details. Yep. Yep. But um, for all you guys listening out there, thank you again for joining us. And again, make sure you check out Capstan Bar Brewing. But until then, we'll catch you guys in the next episode. See ya. See ya. Take care. Thank you.